Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Brian Inkster. Brian is the founder and CEO of Inkster Solicitors, a legal practice with offices in Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Forfa, Glasgow, Inverness, Lerwick, Portree, Thurso and Wick. Brian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Good morning and thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Brian. Um, the purpose of this discussion, the whole reason we're here, in fact, is to discuss your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside and considering that in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes, Brian? To me, I see it as a uh, conductor in an orchestra where you are there to make sure everybody is performing as, as well and as good as they can and working together. But you are letting them get on uh, with doing their job uh, without interfering too much in that uh, and allowing them to, to almost be leaders in their own right, uh, in their own jobs. Uh, and that's very much how I've seen my business and developed my business. Uh, I avoid micromanaging. I avoid trying to tell people what they should or, or shouldn't do. Uh, and allow people to develop their own sense of leadership within the business. And thinking about your sort of personal leadership style, then, would you say that it's quite sort of inclusive, quite collaborative in that sense, that you encourage people to sort of step out of their comfort zone and do things for themselves? Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, it's very much a case of uh, allowing people to um, organize their own business and manage their own business within our business uh, and really, uh, you know, lead themselves to an extent, but mm. be laid overall by me um, by pointing the direction that the business is going in uh, and how I see things being done as a business as a whole, but without, um, as I said earlier, without micromanaging people and without sort of, you know, peering over people's shoulders and and having uh, to look at the minutiae involved, it's more the bigger picture and the larger, the larger situation involved that a leader should be, be involved in. And when it comes to, of course, that keyword learning, I think it's true, isn't it, that we can't really hope to develop as good employees and indeed as good leaders without going on that learning experience of trying things for ourselves, making mistakes and then embracing them as learning curves as and when they come along. That's integral. So it's important from a leadership perspective to essentially avoid having a blame culture in place there and make sure that learning curves can be embraced positively. Very much so. I mean, we are all learning every day. Um, you know, I remember in my early days as a trainee solicitor, um, a trainee that was a, a year ahead of me saying to a window cleaner who came into the room and said, "Are you? is this where you are learning? Um, they responded to them by saying, learned, um, as though they knew everything uh, under the sun. And I thought, how how wrong is that? Because at that stage in your uh, in your career as a solicitor, you're only just starting out and you're still learning everything that there is to be, be learned as a trainee. And still, you know, 30 odd years later, uh, I am still learning new things every day. And we all are. So we're all on a learning journey and we all have to realize and appreciate that. 
and, and make sure that we are um, doing everything on a daily basis to learn and improve um, the way we, we, we work. Absolutely, Brian. And um, I think even though it has been an incredibly difficult and a very challenging and tragic time for many, the COVID-19 pandemic that, of course, we're going through at the moment, I think it has posed one of the greatest ever learning curves for businesses and business leaders within our time. Um, tell me, working within the uh, the legal profession as you do, just how has it been navigating the uh, the last few months from that point of view? Um, well, it all kind of suddenly came to a a grounding halt in, in many areas that we work in at the end of March, beginning of April. Um, suddenly, obviously, when lockdown was announced, we had to go through the process of uh, ensuring that everyone could work remotely from home. That wasn't really a big issue for us because we already had uh, you know, the infrastructure in place and the technology in place that allowed home working through cloud computing and VoIP phones and so on. Um, and a lot of people already worked a lot of time from home rather as in the office. So we already had that flexible working arrangement. So it wasn't a huge deal for us to move the people who normally worked in an office environment to working in a home environment. But then having achieved all that in a short space of time, we were suddenly realizing that there was a lot less work to be done because with the lockdown conveyancing transactions, which we do a lot of, were suddenly on hold because no one was going to be able to move home until lockdown restrictions were lifted. And so um, suddenly transactions that would have been settling in April were put on hold and there was no work to be done for many people. So we were then thrown into the the situation of looking at furloughing and uh, clearly the government um, gave a lifeline to businesses by setting the job retention scheme in place. And that's been, you know, enabled us to retain staff. And now as we've come out of lockdown and we're a little bit further behind in Scotland than you are in England, because we only lifted movement restrictions for um, for house moves on the 29th of June, uh, I think it was a few weeks earlier in England, um, we're only this month seeing the transactions that should have settled in March and April actually now moving ahead and settling, which is good. So this month will be a, be a, be a better month for us and mm-hmm. we are busier and we're seeing a lot more activity, uh, which is all good and will hopefully enable us to start looking at bringing more people back from furlough uh, as the months go on. Mm. And just talking about that um, issue of divergence for a moment, as you rightfully said, of course, the pace of uh, Scottish restrictions being lifted is just a little bit behind what's going on in England uh, with Westminster, because that is something that is under the control of Holyrood. Given that there's sort of two sets of guidelines almost coming through at the same time um, in this sense, um, do you think it's been clear exactly what's been expected of yourselves to sort of continue operating safely and to look to sort of reopen as normal going forwards? Uh, Is there a clear route forward now for you? I think that uh, without being too unkind to Westminster, I think there's been a lot more clarity and consistency in Scotland from Holyrood. The message has been fairly clear and consistent all along. And when decisions have been made, such as masks being made mandatory in shops and so on, it's been very clear. And we've known what to do and when to do it. Um, whereas, you know, when we see what's happening in England, there's a lot of mixed messages and I think it must be a lot more confusing for businesses in England to know what's happening on a day-to-day basis than it has been for us in Scotland. 
And looking back over your experience of managing through the pandemic thus far, would you say that there's anything that this experience has taught you as a leader in the legal profession? Um, it's given me the opportunity to look more closely at the business and the finance of the business and realise that there's areas that we needed addressing that we probably should have addressed before. Uh, it sort of focused your attention a lot more on the uh, the business finances and how we should be running the business maybe in a better and more profitable manner um, because you've been able to take stock and look at things in a different light. And I think as we come out of COVID-19, uh, I can see us building a stronger and better business as a result of that opportunity. Um, we, I don't think we want, ever wanted COVID-19 to give us that opportunity, but I think in some ways it has. And I think a lot of businesses uh, may benefit from that pause and ability to look at how their business is structured and moving forward, how better to run that business. It certainly has been a period of self-reflection, Brian. I think that's um, exactly right. And one interesting uh, question I am interested to sort of know just a little bit more about. Um, when there's so much worry sort of sparked by a crisis, especially a pandemic such as this, I suppose the natural reaction for an employee within any business is to look up the hierarchical ladder for that sort of reassurance, inspiration and direction when they need it. Um, yeah. But when you are the person who's running the business at the top of the tree and there's nobody really above you to refer to... Where do you tend to look for that inspiration as and when you need it? Um, I have a, a network of, of other people that I can turn to and speak to um, that I've built up over years. Uh, I have groups of other solicitors who I can turn to and I can discuss matters with. And um, also during COVID-19, there's been an awful lot of um, additional online information and help through webinars and so on about various aspects um, that I've been able to turn to uh, and utilize. So I've not really seen that as a problem. Um, I think really because I've already got a network, uh, a support network in place uh, of people that I can uh, exchange ideas with and speak to. So I've not felt alone by any means um, during this. That's certainly positive. And thinking about sort of what the future might bring, um, especially with regard to the precedent set by the lockdown period, do you think there are some features of lockdown, particularly with regard to working practices, that could end up becoming permanent parts of the way that business functions across the UK? I mean, certainly the whole question of the use of an office uh, is being spoken about daily at the moment. You know, will people return to offices and use them in the way that they originally did? Will working from home become more of a uh, the norm, uh, and so on? And for our business, that's not really a big deal because we were already doing that. Um, we have a lot of self-employed consultant solicitors that work under Dinkster's umbrella, and we've allowed them complete flexibility over the years. In that, if they want to work from home, they can work from home. If they want to work from an office, they can work from an office. If they want to do a mixture, they can do a mixture. And we ha have put the technology in place to allow that to happen. So for us, as we come out of COVID-19, 
the question of returning to the office is not really a big one because the people that want to return to the office can and those that don't, don't have to. Um, the, the situation might be slightly different when it comes to support and administrative staff who have historically worked more in the office than, than out with the office. But COVID-19 has shown that some of those members of staff can work quite well out with the office without having to necessarily be there. And I think this will maybe introduce an element of choice for them that maybe wasn't there before. And I think we'll see that in other organisations as well. But I still believe that the office has a place and that for a lot of people, they want to be in an office because a home working environment doesn't suit them. And I think the whole thing should be around flexibility and choice. Uh, and I think we will see that appearing in more businesses as we move forward. But I think it is possibly a mistake for business leaders to suddenly decide we can get rid of our offices because people can work from home mm. and COVID-19 has demonstrated that um, because some people just do not want to work at home and prefer to work in an office and uh, leaders need to look at what their employees actually want and provide that. I suppose there is also a whole sort of mental health and well-being issue attached to that as well in that as human beings we are ultimately social creatures and we do need that human interaction that I think pre-pandemic we did take for granted somewhat. Um, just yeah. before Brian we do um, wrap things up on the uh, the programme today if we think about embracing the challenges of the new normal now and what might come over the next sort of 12 to 18 months what do you feel is on the horizon for you and for Inksters and what do you really hope to achieve as a firm? Um, I think, as I said kind of earlier, COVID-19 has not really impacted on how we work as a practice too much because we were already working in that flexible manner. And I think we will continue to do that uh, with the mixture you're involved. Um, I think we will look at opportunities coming out of this as far as the business model that we have will suit a lot of people who have experienced working from home during COVID-19, but maybe haven't been supported in the way that they could or should have been to enable that to happen by their existing employers and, uh, and people who see a need to be more independent as a result of that. And our business model, which allows self-employed consultants to sort of operate their own practices within the Inkster's umbrella will, I think, be attractive to a lot of people and potentially will allow us to grow the business um, with people in that situation uh, looking at us as an attractive um, alternative to a traditional law firm. Mm, certainly seems like there's uh, much uh, to come then, uh, Brian. Um, I have to say, um, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme. And, you know, given how informative it's been having you join us to discuss these issues today, I think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the show perhaps in future just to see how things are getting on in that regard. Very happy to do that. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure, as I say, Brian, um, and most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base in future, because there are still a great many variables in the way that this pandemic could go. Please do continue to take care and stay safe. 
Same with you. Thank you very much. And for all of those tuning in, do continue to be sensible, even with lockdown restrictions gradually lifting now. Look after yourselves, look after others, because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. I was speaking today to Brian Inkster, founder and CEO of Inkster Solicitors in Scotland. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with the former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Despite being blind from birth, in fact, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding numerous senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up, 
and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.